Welcome to In China with Michelle Zhou. Manufacturers have long known China to be a leader in their industry, but now the world is recognizing China as a business center for companies, market traders, education, and artists. It's no wonder that the economy has grown to be the world's second largest. In our program, you'll learn from the thought leaders and professionals who have lived in both the U.S. and China and continue to do business there. Now, here is your host, Michelle Zhou. Welcome, everyone. It's so great having you here today. You are listening to In China with Michelle Zhou, and I'm your host, Michelle. I'm the founder and the CEO of Pacific Technologies Consulting Group. We help American and Chinese organizations learn from each other, bridge their needs, and grow their businesses internationally. You can contact me at our company website, ptcgconsulting.com. And I always welcome you to connect me on LinkedIn. Today we have Spencer Cohen on the show together with me. He is an economist based in Seattle. I attended his seminar back in February in Washington State China Relations Council, and he talked about unpacking the U.S.-China Phase One trade deal. And I found that's very informational. So I invited Spencer to this show. Today we are going to talk about this U.S.-China Phase One trade deal, but also the impact of the COVID-19. Spencer, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, let's start with a brief introduction from your side. Can you tell our audience about who you are? Sure. So I serve as senior economist with a Seattle-based research and data analytics consulting firm called Community Attributes, and so we do a lot of work around. International trade analysis, economic impact research and reports, and data visualization and data analytics. A lot of different clients in the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere in the U.S. Wonderful. So, as I mentioned,、uh, I attended your seminar and I found it was very informative. But that was in February. Things are changing these days with the COVID nineteen, which is not expected by any of us, and、uh, it's generating big impact. So,、uh, I reached out to you before this COVID nineteen really get into the U.S. side, have this big impact. So, let's start this conversation. I think、uh, I. Still want to have this opportunity so that you can help、uh, the audience understand the U.S.-China the Phase One trade deal, which took a long time to get there, right?、Mm-hmm. And what does it mean? Because it's hard for business owners、uh, or you know just regular people understand the nuances be- behind it. And from there, then we. Go too well with the current situation. Lots of things are changing.、Uh, what's the impact?、Uh, is it still this trade deal? Is it still going to happen, or may need to change? All right. Now let's go back to the first part. Your unpacking <laughs> the U.S.-China Phase One trade deal kind of seminar. Can you help us understand?、Uh, you know, in a very simple way. Maybe go a little bit of the history, the U.S.-China trade deal in general. From there, then we talk in more deep, in depth of the Phase One. Sure. Okay. So I can start with a little background and how we got to this point. So beginning in 2000, so the Beginning with the election of、uh, President Trump, there was a lot of talk in the administration about being tougher on China and using the toolkit of tariffs to try to pressure China to reform a lot of its domestic policies with respect to trade and implement more what's considered to be more fair trade practices. And so, what the administration did was it invoked two things. So it invoked two three two, which is related to national security, which allows the president to to use tariffs to punish importation or to raise the cost or apply tariffs to importation of steel and aluminum into the U.S. And then in August of 2017, the administration invoked what's called Section 301 of the U.S. Trade Act of 1974. And so what that does is that allows the president to instruct or the U.S. Trade Rep to launch an investigation into a counterparty and to investigate whether or not that counterparty is conducting unfair trade practices that are harming U.S. businesses. And so. That report came out in March of 2008 and concluded that China was unfairly requiring foreign firms to transfer intellectual property 
from those firms to their domestic counterparts, the joint ventures. It was often referred to at the time as the Chinese policy of indigenous innovation. And then the Chinese policy of targeting industrial sectors for benefits at the expense of U.S. companies. So what that did was that gave the, the combination of 232 and Section 301 of the Trade Act gave the administration the ability legally then to start to apply tariffs on Chinese products that were entering the U.S. And so, you know, like any trade war, there's a ratcheting up and a tit for tat. So, you know, if you look at the long chronology of the application of tariffs, it's both sides, right? So U.S. applied a tar- a tariffs on a set number of goods. China retaliated with their own tariffs on U.S. goods. And this continued on and on all the way through December to the point where these tariffs were affecting $360 billion worth of U.S. imports from China. Mm-hmm. So it covered roughly about, it also affected though U.S. exporters. So between 56 and 58% of U.S. exports to China were subject to special tariffs or retaliatory tariffs. Right. And so, you know, that's just the nature of a trade war is this tit for tat. And there's a lot of collateral damage because, you know, the people that are most directly harmed by a trade war on the U.S. side are going to be U.S. households who are the primary, you know, recipients or purchases of many consumer goods that are manufactured in China that are subject to these escalated tariffs, as well as U.S. manufacturers. So a lot of U.S. manufacturers depend on the importation of Chinese components as part of their manufacturing processes. And that just speaks to the sort of the extensive globalization of supply chains that are really affecting or really important for a lot of U.S. companies. So the other collateral damage is also in U.S. exporters. So a lot of companies, especially here in Washington state, really depend on China as an important export market. You know, China is really important for our agricultural commodity exporters, Boeing aircraft, you know, even though the tariffs did not, the retaliatory tariffs did not apply to commercial aircraft. China just hasn't purchased Boeing aircraft in two years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, examples like that can be quite harmful to our local economy that's so dependent upon trade. So the other thing too is that China, even though China was is escalating tariffs on US goods, it was actually reducing tariffs on the margins for the rest of the world. So if you look at the beginning of the trade war, just before the beginning of the trade war, the average tariff, and this is some research done by the Peterson Institute of International Economics that showed that the average tariff, all goods imported into China was about 8%. And by the late fall, U.S. imports to China were subject to an average about a 20% tariff, whereas the rest of the world actually saw a slight decrease in its average tariff of about down to 6.7%. Mm-hmm. It hurts companies that have spent, I mean, in many cases, decades carving out market share in China, especially commodity producers like soft winter wheat, which was grown and sold out of eastern Washington, cherries, for instance, and lots of other commodities that the Commodity Commission has been a long time carving out those market shares. And if these fractious relationship persists, it really opens up, it exposes these, these exporters to the risk that alternatives could enter the Chinese market instead. You know, if you look at, you know, soft winter wheat is a very, it's a preferable type of wheat flour used in a lot of Chinese baked goods. But there are other producers of other kinds of wheat, for instance, in Russia, in Canada, and Australia, that could be, you know, imperfect substitutes down the road. So, and once you lose market share, a lot of people that we spoke with said, you know, it's lost, right? It's really hard to regain that market share. So that's kind of the background to how we got to this point. And, you know, there's definitely a lot of, I think both sides came to the realization they needed. They needed something to hang their hat on to say that there was some kind of victory, both on the Chinese and the U.S. side. They both wanted to have some kind of at least truce from the constant escalating escalating tariffs, escalating rancor between both sides. So that's really how we got to the trade the trade deal. Mm-hmm. So the, yeah. they call it the phase one deal. So I think uh, what you summarized is the trade war really created this lose-lose kind of situation from mm-hmm. both sides. And uh, after dragging for so long, because I think in the very beginning from the U.S. side, uh, they were thinking, well, this can, I guess they were thinking about this can be relatively short and uh, get China agree on certain things. But uh, it sounds like it's not uh, getting to the original goal in a short, in a quick way. So, and the damage is being 
already caused and the fact uh, we already saw that right everybody can see it so that uh, comes to the both sides want to really find some way to get agreement to kind of recover or smooth out a little bit uh, help the both sides of companies uh, businesses to continue grow or at least recover some of those uh, business so that's uh, after many rounds of negotiation I think the phase one finally reached yeah I mean it's there was definitely a strong impetus to have something like for all of the rhetoric that went on on the US side about being tough on China there was definitely a sense that they needed some kind of victory right they needed something to say like we've this was all worth it because we got something out of it and it's trade is typically not in most election cycles trades really not the biggest issue that voters vote on or care about, to be honest. I mean, there are certainly pockets. You know, you, you look at the Pacific Northwest, you look at places like Seattle, for instance, you know, people can't tend to care more about trade, but it's not generally a big issue that rises to a key driver of voting decisions across the country during, in election years. That being said, there were certainly certain pockets of interest across the country that were very adversely impacted by the trade war. So. You know, the biggest example are soybean farmers in the Midwest. Mm. And so they were very anxious to see conclusion to all of this. It should say, though, you know, but to, to emphasize, though, the phase one deal, which we'll talk about in more detail, but the phase one deal does not remove tariffs or escalated tariffs that are in place were implemented because during the trade war. All it does is it ceases the further escalation of tariffs. Mm. So, you know, all of the Washington state or U.S. products that are exported to China still are subject to those tariffs, you know, in many cases. And so there are exceptions for certain kinds of products. And if China is going to be able to successfully meet the demands or the requirements or, or commitments for its vast increase in imports from the U.S., it's going to have to lower tariffs, right, just to make those products more affordable in China. But at least as it's written, it doesn't require, a, for instance, the U.S. to remove those tariffs or lower them back down to what they were before the trade war. So, you know, I think they really just wanted something, some kind of victory and put at least a ceasefire on some of this stuff. And, you know, the trade war, too, there are bigger issues at play that the trade war is just sort of like a, a microcosm of, you know, there's big concerns about you know, China's growing role in the world system and a lot of concerns about China's, you know, the its actions in the South China Sea. There's concerns about right or wrong. There are concerns about how China is using the Belt and Road Initiative potentially to build, you know, alternative types of alliances. Those might be overstated in terms of their the, why that we should be worried about them. But there's definitely people in D.C. that see that as a potential threat. So. There's a lot of anxiety about China being able to exert its um, exert its power a little more and influence in the world, and a lot of people, I think, in D.C. are really worried about that. They, mm -hmm. Again, I think their worries might be overstated or not entirely founded in in you know in reasoning, but either way, those are real anxieties that people in D.C. and policymakers are really fixated on right now, or have been, and so. That's a big, you know, the trade war is just more of a, a kind of a, a manifestation reflection of these bigger issues. And that's why you hear terms like decoupling has become a big issue, you know. And when we talk about later on in this conversation, we talk about like the COVID-19 virus, you know, all of the, you know, manufacture of pharmaceutical, uh, biopharmaceutical, you know, medicines and, and antibiotics in China that are necessary to combat the virus, all the, you know, the manufacture of masks and other, you know, personal protection equipment. There's a lot of conversations too about in DC about should we reshore or try to encourage the reshoring of a lot of those supply chains in what are apparently especially with this current crisis, you know, our national security importance, right? To make sure that you have adequate medicines manufactured domestically. So in equipment. So, you know, the trade war is just a, it's a bigger, it's just part of a bigger issue around, you know, this notion of decoupling. So one thing before, I know we want to talk about the details, but one thing I'd add to was that, is that a, 
the trade war and the trade deal that we'll talk about is really a broader, it's a reflection too of a, a very fundamentally different worldview. So before the Trump administration, the US was negotiating the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was an entirely different way of trying to influence China's behavior mm-hmm. on the global stage, right? So the TPP was a 12 member, 12 country, you know, US plus 11 other country trade deal that was essentially creating, you know, a, a somewhat, you know, basically free trade zone, including not entirely free, but relatively free trade zone between all these different countries in the Pacific. And it ended up actually being the basis for the USMCA. So the USMCA, you know, US Canada Mexico agreement is Mexico Canada agreement is basically the TPP, but applied to just two members of the TPP as opposed to all other eleven. But the the benefits of the TPP were that you know, even though it didn't include China, it created a standard that China could potentially, you know, reform its its practices to then become part of, right? So there was an opportunity, the door was open for China to join the TPP. So it was this sort of like more, if not explicit, implicit incentive structure where China could, if China, you know, ceased some of the practices that have been, you know, kind of giving consternation to a lot of U.S. policymakers and U.S. companies uh, related to intellectual property, for instance, then China could become part of it to join the TPP and gain access to all these other markets at a much more competitive rate, right? I mean, they can sell those markets now, but they'd be able to join a, a, you know, a be much more competitive in those markets if they could join the TPP. So the administration dispensed with the TPP right away and went instead for a, a much more punitive approach and also a bilateral approach, whereas, you know, previous administrations were focused on both Democrat and Republican were really focused on the or really saw the benefits of multilateralism and working with our partners on issues, be it trade, you know, be it other issues on security and so forth. The Trump administration really believes in bilateralism and they believe in the one one transactional sort of international agreements. And that's what the trade deal is, the trade war and the trade deal is all about. It's just a, it views trade as a bilateral activity, which I disagree with. I think trade is highly multilateral in nature. And it sees the ways to resolve these issues, such as unfair trade practices in China, through a bilateral approach, as opposed to a multilateral approach. Yeah, I totally agree with you. The worldview from our leaders, they have changed, and that uh, caused uh, a lot of uh, behavior change, right, in terms of uh, restoring from the broader kind of uh, alliance or agreement uh, to the bilateral West China head-to-head against each other or (laughs) fighting with each other. I think it's time to take a quick break. And after we come back, I really want to to hear from you that uh, how do we really understand this phase one of the trade deal? us to break it down piece by piece. And uh, after that, then we will talk about the impact of the COVID-19. And maybe there's many other things that would impact this trade deal. All right, let's take a quick break. China is now the second largest economy in the world. There are hundreds of opportunities for worldwide business professionals to start looking in China. From business leaders to manufacturers to artists and students, you need to discover these opportunities to grow your business and your career. Listen every week for In China with Michelle Zhou, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For business sake, you need to tune in. You are listening to In China with Michelle Zhou. To call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to info at ptcgconsulting.com. Now, back to this week's program. Now we're back. Before the break, Spencer, you helped us look at the big picture, the history, and what is behind this trade war. Now, let's zoom into this phase one of the trade deal between U.S. and China. What does it mean? Because let's say the, the agreement published, it's hard for just normal people to understand it. And also business leaders want to understand what does that mean to our business. So can you help us to break it down to pieces, understand the impact or opportunities that it can bring to the or the U.S. leaders? 
Sure. So just kind of walk through very at a very high level to start with, like what are the big components of the agreement? So there are chapter one deals with intellectual property protections. Chapter two then talks about tech transfer, so the transfer of technology to counterparties. Chapter three has to do with food and agricultural products. So the you know, and this is specifically around removal of non-tariff barriers to the importation of food and agricultural products into China. So you know, both phytosanitary and, and non-phytosanitary standards. And then chapter four is around financial services, so opening up the Chinese market more to for U.S. companies to be able to access the financial services industry. And the chapter five then is what it covers macroeconomic policy, exchange rate matters, and transparency, which really talks really specifically around the exchange rate and currency manipulation issues. Chapter six, which we'll delve into quite a bit, is what called expanding trade. And that's really the most consequential, potentially, part of the whole deal is the expanding trade component. And we'll talk more about that. Chapter 7 is really about the bilateral dispute resolution. And again, it goes back to what I was talking before about the, the view of this as being trade as a bilateral activity and that these issues can be resolved in a bilateral fashion as opposed to working with an organization like the WTO which the administration has been really sort of, I mean, arguably obstructive to and not allowing the WTO to have enough people to have a quorum. So this is almost, a, it's, it's structured as an alternative, but it doesn't really have a lot of teeth to it. But there is what they, they, they do call it, though, a bilateral dispute resolution system. And then there's then chapter is just final provisions, which are actually quite important because the final provisions include the provision that one of the reasons why, allowable reasons why China does not comply with its agreement or commitments for expanding, it's grossly expanding its imports of U.S. goods is for natural disasters. And so, you know, the COVID-19 virus is, you know, a case in, or a classic example right there. I mean, of, of an example of, or what actually came to be a reality of something that a natural disaster that's preventing China from being able to meet, at least in 2020, meet those import agreements. So just real quickly through the first couple of chapters. So the first two chapters, as I said, deal with intellectual property, trade secrets, and tech transfer. Some notable things it does require now, it moves the burden of proof from the accuser to the accused in a matter of, of intellectual property theft between a US company and a Chinese company. It eliminates the need to produce evidence of actual losses as a prerequisite for initiating criminal investigations. Uh, it really pushes for greater transparency in terms of publication of penalties and infringements, and it prohibits the forced technology transfer as a precondition for foreign investment to China. So this is a big issue because China several years ago implemented or tried to implement what it called indigenous innovation. And the idea was that as part of that, foreign companies would have to, in certain industries, would have to participate in joint ventures, in which case they would have to share their intellectual property or trade secrets with their counterparty or with their partner. And this created a lot of angst in the foreign investment community in China. And so China says that it will, this, this can only be based on market terms and voluntary and reflecting mutual agreement now. The issue with this, though, is that a lot of these issues, China says, yeah, we agree with these and we're going to you know, prohibit, for instance, uh, tech transfer as a precondition for foreign investment. But they also say that they've been on record as saying that this doesn't actually happen anyways in China. We know it does happen. So if they don't, Chinese authorities don't recognize this as an actual issue, it kind of puts in a limbo how effective an enforcement mechanism will be for protecting U.S. companies from this. I think uh, just going back to that point, uh, again, there's a different uh, worldview uh, for how, you know, this uh, intellectual property being transferred, right? Both sides have their own way of looking at the world. Because I grew up in China and I know the what you mean by the deal structure. Because thinking about many years ago, the joint venture, you, you have to come to China by through joint venture and 51% or whatever, there's a mandate for the percentage ownership from China side and the other foreign company side. And through that kind of structure, then the technology can be transferred, business can be done, and the market, right, for foreign companies, they want the big market in China and also the cheap labor force in order to serve to the rest of the world with cheaper products. So there's a benefit from both sides from business sense but the deal structure you know there's some government policies making the deal has to be done in a certain way which i think from foreign side they see this 
has to cause to this kind of a transfer uh, the trade secrets or the, the core IP into China. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's going back all the way back to the early stages of, of reform in the early 80s in the creation of special economic zones. That was that one of the main interests or drivers of those reforms was to find ways to learn from foreign companies. And so it shouldn't be a surprise, right? I mean, it's this was this is one of the biggest benefits to China of foreign investments. You know, we think of foreign investment in the U.S., we think about jobs, we think about, you know, employers. But in China, it's really like a lot of other developing economies throughout, you know, the 20th, 21st centuries. This is all about being able to learn from foreign companies. And the best way to learn from them is to encourage them to make investments in China. So, yeah, which is totally makes sense from the China side. But I would do. <laughs> right, right. Because uh, I grew up in China and I experienced that. And I worked uh, in the early 90s in joint ventures from the U.S. Chinese company joint ventures. Uh, I saw how that kind of a form helped China side, the Chinese technical workers really learn and catch up on that. Otherwise, uh, China would forever just be the country that people are working at the lowest level, doing the, the lowest type of a job, not really gaining the the higher profitable kind of business or doing those kind of products. So, you know, from China side, it totally makes sense for them to do this. And um, they think it's fair because business is business. Otherwise, you don't come, right? You don't form this joint venture or whatever the later type of format. So from business side, they make a businesses make a decision just from different view, right? From different side, they have different view, but there are a lot of concerns of the technology going to China and then, you know, we lose the US side, lose the cutting edge <laughs> competitive advantage. Yeah, but you know, mm-hmm. I think that it's also, and this, this is not just specific to China, but this is just throughout history is that, especially in the 20th century, if you look at Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, I mean, a lot of these countries, especially in East Asia, their intellectual property protections historically among developing or countries that were in their development phases or rapid growth phases were always kind of lax and loose, you know, and it really, when the, in a lot of those countries, like when the rules enforcement really came into effect was when policy, when leaders in those countries and policymakers realized that they had reached the point where the only way to continue to maintain high rates of growth is by protecting those whole property and protecting those property rights in the market. And that's why, you know, if you look at as much as U.S. companies complain or rightly about in many cases about having their intellectual property rights stolen or taken from them in China, some of the biggest victims of intellectual property theft are actually Chinese companies. Historically, I mean, you know, Chinese companies, I'm sure, and I haven't seen the, I don't have the data in front of me, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, the majority of those that have been, especially, you know, last 15, 20 years, right, the, the majority of companies that have been victimized by intellectual property infringements are actually Chinese companies. So it's actually, you know, I think the government's going to make a much more concerted effort. They have been making a lot of good, I think, uh, you know, they've made a lot of good progress in that space of protection of property rights. It's complicated. It's not easy. You know, you have to, there's a lot of legalistic issues you need to work through in terms of defining and and enforcing those rights. But I think that it's going to continue to accelerate. I'm very optimistic in China about the enforcement and protection of IPR because I think it's in China's best interest, especially even before the the trade war, before the the COVID-19 virus, there were, uh, China's growth was decelerating. So China peaked at about 14.3% growth in real terms in mean, 2007, and you had the financial crisis. And then afterwards, China was going through an adjustment period where its growth was decelerating, you know, to the point where last year it was about 6%. Right. Um, even before the COVID-19 virus, I mean, we don't know what those numbers are going to show us now. We're expecting them to be pretty, pretty grim for the Chinese economy for 2020, or at least the first quarter. But even before the COVID virus, you know, the projections were China was going to grow at about 5.8%, give or take. So the only way that China is going to be able to maintain that growth, because you've seen China basically for a long time, the eastern cities on the coast were able to, which were the manufacturing hubs for the most part, 
were able to take advantage of a seemingly infinite supply of migrant labor, of cheap migrant labor, and that's been exhausted, right? So you've seen wages go up, you've seen a lot of other factors that are driving up the cost of doing business in China. And so China can't rely on cheap labor, for instance, like it used to rely on because of that exhaustion of cheap labor. So you're seeing more growth in the future coming from innovation as opposed to just low-cost labor production. And so initial property protections are critical to that. So I'm pretty optimistic about the protections because I think it is in their own vested interest to protect, to, to enforce the protection of intellectual property. Yeah, I totally agree with you. This is also what I see. It's changing and uh, it's getting better and better. Okay, now let's uh, also take a look at uh, these uh, different uh, chapters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell us more about it and sure. yes. from the industry, how we are going to leverage this opportunity. So I'll just go briefly through a few of these because I think um, the meat of it's really going to be the expanding trade component. But so chapters three, four, and five deal with agriculture and food, financial services, and macroeconomic policies. And so my main comments are that China is committed to not use sanitary and phytosanitary measures as a form of a non-tariff barrier. So they can still use those measures if there's an actual health concern, you know, if there's worries about tainted meats being imported or, or any other sort of public health concern, they can still invoke those measures. But a lot of countries historically have taken advantage of the sanitary and phytosanitary standards as another form of barrier, a non-tariff barrier to trade. So China's committed to not do that. That being said, you know, and that applies um, in as part of that also to easing restrictions on U.S. beef, pork, poultry, and rice. But for the former three, China's had a big decimation, as well, many of us know, you know, have tracked this, like a huge decimation of its pork supply um, because of African swine flu. So right. it's definitely in China's interest to, you know, roughly some estimate think 50% decimation of their pork supply. So China definitely needs to import pol- they need to import protein. And so by saying they're going, this isn't directly in their own interest. I mean, they were going to do this anyways, right, to ease restrictions or have been doing that to ease restrictions on in importation of U.S. protein products. China's also removing barriers to U.S. dairy products. And the dairy has been hit pretty hard. The U.S. dairy exports to China were down 47% in 2019, the previous 12 months. So that's good for the dairy industry as well. There is resumption as well of talks of U.S. and China Technical Working Group on seafood. With respect to the macroeconomic policies components, so the agreement is that exchange rates are to be set by market conditions. But again, you know, China for a long period of time until about 2005 was heavily directly intervening in its foreign exchange markets to influence and to artificially depress the value of the renminbi to make their exporters more competitive overseas. But since then, they've gradually been loosening, ever since ever since 2005, right, they've been opening the daily band with which the renminbi can be traded at. And there have been some bumps in the road, but I mean, of most recently, last year, things changed quite a bit to the point where China was actually intervening in the end to actually uh, to prop up or to prevent the further devaluation of the RMB. So actually in intervening to prop up the value of the RMB, which is actually good, you know, in theory for everything else held constant for U.S. exporters to China. It was only after China in November or October, I think it was October, when China decided to halt its interventions in the foreign exchange markets and allowed the RMB to depreciate based on market conditions and adjustments that there was a big uproar about this. So it's kind of an irony, but they have agreed. Again, I don't think it has a lot of effect right now, our relationship with China, to be honest. With respect to financial markets, uh, you know, U.S. firms that are engaged in securities investments, brokerage, underwriting, credit rating services, electronic payments and insurance, that's going to open up those, they're going to, China will open up, is opening up the market for those companies. That also being said, that's already been happening. So again, this is kind of codifying something that's already in place, already happening. China's already been opening up its financial markets. I'm going to talk now about the expanding trade, which is chapter six. And so this is really the big kind of piece of the trade deal that everyone's been really focused on. And so China has agreed or committed to purchase $200 billion worth of U.S. goods and services over two years. So 2020 and 2021 over a base year of 2017. 
So there's a lot of irony, of course, in that, and I'm going to quote this from page 6-2 in the trade deal. It says, parties acknowledge that purchases will be made at market prices based on commercial considerations, particularly in the case of agricultural products, may dictate the timing of purchases within any given year. So what's basically happening is there's a lot of irony in this deal. And so this one struck me, and I think it struck a lot of other people in that, the U.S. has really, for all these years, you know, we're, the common generic comparison, right, was U.S. is a sort of laissez-faire, free market economy. China is socialism with Chinese characteristics, so sort of experimental engagement, experimental willingness to open up certain segments of the economy to market forces, but still generally managed by the Communist Party. And you have a situation where it's the U.S. side that's setting a quota for trade. <laughs> right, which is, and it's the Chinese side that's pushing back and says that they will agree to, to these these expanded trade targets so long as they're based on market principles mm-hmm. and market prices and commercial considerations. So there's a lot of just kind of, I find, and I think probably other, you know, China watchers find this to be kind of humorous. This is the state of things right now is that it's the U.S. side that's calling for quotas and managed trade is the term that's being circulated. And the Chinese side is the one that's calling for market-driven, market-driven trade, trade flows. So it's very funny. When I saw this term, I was really laughing at it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a we're living in a weird world. So, (laughs) so the deal is really broken in two parts. So there are specific targets for major categories of U.S. exports to China. They don't go into detail about the targets below that, right? So. There are four buckets. They talk about manufactured goods, agriculture, energy, which includes like, you know, liquefied natural gas, and then services. Each of those buckets includes a whole bunch of all ty- other kinds of products, right? So manufactured goods includes things like ultrasound equipment, processed food, airplanes, you name it. But those products are not subject to specific quotas. It's just that manufactured goods in general have to hit a certain target. So... So China committed to purchase over a two-year period an increase, again, this is an increase over 2017 levels of about $78 billion worth of manufactured goods, $32 billion worth of agricultural products, and a little more than $52 billion worth of energy products, and then services just shy of $38 billion. So that all sums up, I'm just, I'm rounding, but that sums up to $200 billion. Yeah, and I think the reaction here is many of us, when we look at those numbers and we're thinking, well, on one side of what has been done by the trade war, right, it's significantly trimmed down those current trade. Mm-hmm. On the other side is, well, even without the trade war, if both countries are opening up, then do we from the U.S. side have those kind of supply? How do we ramp up the supply right. to meet those numbers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, if you look at the numbers, you know, so... 2017 is the reference year, and in 2017, the U.S. exported about $150 billion worth of goods and services, mostly goods, but also services, also a good chunk of services to China. By 2021, and these are adjusted in real, in, you know, inflation-adjusted terms, right? So in 2021, we're talking about $273 billion dollars. So in total exports, because that includes both the baseline plus the additional, you know, the additional incre- the increase incrementally over 2017. So you're, you're almost, you're saying you're basically going to double, effectively double exports between, you know, from 2017 levels. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that, as you pointed out, I mean, like the trade war really had an adverse impact on our export flows to China because of the retaliatory tariff supply to U.S. goods. So even though we exported $150 billion in 2017, 2019, we exported about $133 billion worth of goods and, and services. So, you know, you're talking about even like a more gargantuan increase. It would effectively mean that, you know, we'd have to, we'd have to have an even larger increase based on 2019 levels. So, you know, I'm kind of, I'm pretty, you can probably sense that I'm a little bit dubious about this. I also think that, the way that it goes back to the idea of bilateralism and trade as a bilateral activity versus a multilateral, because 
two things can happen, right? Or three things, I suppose. Like one, and we'll talk about COVID in a bit, but like China simply just can't meet its commitments, you know, and the trade deal falls apart. Right. And so that's one outcome. Two is they can meet it part way, but enough that the U.S. is willing to accept, even though it falls short of the expansion of trade. And three is that it does meet its, you know, or these are all on a spectrum. But I mean, the other extreme is that China meets its trade, its import requirements from the U.S., but it does so by basically diverting imports from other countries. So rather than see trade as a positive sum of multilateral activity, trade becomes a zero-sum game where China agrees to buy more stuff from the U.S., but in order to do so, it's going to have to buy less products from, it's going to divert that demand for, you know, other from products from Brazil or Japan or the U.K., for instance. It'll divert that demand from those countries to the U.S. to satisfy the trade quota. Well, it, it and really I think that there's allies a, in yeah. opposition. So what else about this uh, phase one that we think is really important uh, we should cover? Well, you know, I think that the one of the big provisions for the phase one, as I mentioned, is natural disasters. So a natural disaster is one acceptable reason why the Chinese side is not able to meet its it comply with its agreement to purchase $200 billion in U.S. goods over two years. The Trump administration has pretty much already accepted that as a valid reason. So given the fact that Chinese economy is most likely going to show pretty sizable contraction in quarter one of 2020 because of the coronavirus, and it's going to take a while for the Chinese economy to recover, You know, because even though China's economy is, they are just today, for instance, they're effectively removing the lockdown Hubei province. That and workers are going back to work. You're seeing factories running at 75% capacity. So you're seeing an increase in ramping up production. The pattern of the virus now is it's affecting the countries that China depends on as their export markets, right? right. I think that's going to be make it further complicate the recovery period for China is the fact that, you know, the U.S. is going to experience, I mean, when the data comes out, we're definitely, it's definitely going to show a recession just because so many people simply can't work and can't purchase things, right? They can't go out and spend money on consumer goods and consumer services because they just physically can't go. So China is still very dependent upon foreign markets. And it's not just, it's not just the U.S. Many of its trade partners are really dealing with like the worst phase of the coronavirus. So U.S., Japan, Italy, in all parts of Europe are really struggling right now. Spain, the U.K., so Germany. So that's going to be another kind of hindrance on China being able to fulfill, regain, <laughs> yeah, fulfill regain and be able to grow, get back to those even lower projected growth rates. Mm-hmm. So that's just going to make it even more complicated. So I'm pretty dubious about, <laughs> about how what this trade deal means. And I would also say, though, too, that like right now, for one, the U.S. economy, as much as the rhetoric, the administration, U.S. Trump administration's talked about things like, you know, trade wars, we can win this and it's good for America, blah, blah, blah. And there's been really exact, it's exacted real pain, right? Because whenever you apply tariffs, a tariff is a tax. So it's households and manufacturers for the most part that bear the cost of that tax right on the u.s side so the economy is so fragile right now and it's really just taken a beating because of the covid 19 virus that the administration i don't anticipate them trying to get tough on china anyways i mean one i think it's a futile effort because china's really just gotten so battered by the virus that to their impact of their economy that it doesn't really serve any purpose at this point to get tough on China again or to call them out. And they've already acknowledged that China can, for valid reasons, not fulfill its agreements in 2020. But they also don't want to do anything that harms the U.S. economy further at this point. And then a trade war would definitely do that. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a thing I think that they'll try to, you know, that's it's a check the box that they accomplish something, arguably. But. <laughs> At least on the surface, uh, there's something right in written, and they can announce a victory yeah. <laughs> at the stage. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is, you know. <laughs> Let's pause here, and I want to discuss with you about uh, the last part. Are you interested in expanding your business to China, but don't know how to start? Are you wondering how to grow your sales in the China market and win over competition? Meet Michelle Zhou and her team at Pacific Technologies Consulting Group. Our consultants are U.S.-China experts and have all lived and worked in both the U.S. and China with many years' experience in market entry strategies, management, and execution. We can help you find the right partners, develop opportunities, and grow your business in China. 
please visit ptcgconsulting.com today. You are listening to In China with Michelle Zhou. To call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to info at ptcgconsulting.com. Now, back to this week's program. All right, so we took a quick break from that, and now we come back and uh, continue to talk about this uh, trade deal and the impact of the COVID-19. Now, I think, uh, Spencer, given the COVID-19 is really making big impact, what's your view of how this COVID-19 kind of large disaster <laughs> revealed the relationship or the structure of the economy of both U.S. and China? And how that relates to the, uh, the future of the, the trend or the deal, the trade deal that is going to shape the two economy? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the one big takeaway, I mean, after the dust settles and, you know, hopefully we'll get through the, I mean, we will certainly get through this, this crisis, but it's just a matter of how long it's going to take and what's going to be the ultimate economic damage caused by the, the COVID-19 virus. But one thing that's already been, you're starting to see a bit hotly debated, and it will be even more hotly debated, I think, afterwards, in the wake of the virus, is going to be about global supply chains. And it's going to be about, you know, the manufacture and, and supply of what might be considered or will be considered potentially national security assets to the U.S. that are produced in China. So if you look at the large percentage of pharmaceutical products that the U.S. consumes, and our healthcare system uses and depends on that's manufactured in China, as well as all of the talked a lot about in the news about the, the shortage of personal protection equipments like masks, gowns, gloves, all those things are primarily manufactured in China. And so there will be, I think, a, a really close scrutiny and, and analysis, the highest levels about do we, is it in the U.S.'s best interest to have such a low diversification, right, or such a highly concentrated sourcing of those products from one country. And that one country happens to be one that the U.S. currently has a complicated relationship with. So that whole notion, discussion around readjusting of supply chains potentially and finding ways through policy incentives or other measures in the U.S. to encourage those companies to diversify, if not reshore back to the U.S., at least diversify the production into other countries that are closer allies of the U.S., I think it's going to be a big topic of discussion. And it really kind of gets to this, you know, we talked before about this notion of decoupling and people like Peter Navarro has been a big driver of a much more sort of confrontational status or position of the U.S. and China, uh, with China, and how we deal with China, have been really pushing this term decoupling, which for a long time really was kind of a buzzword, you know, didn't have a lot of meaning. It was, it was, it really was just that. It was just a buzzword. But if you look at a few specific sectors, it does have meaning and it has meaning with respect to China's great firewall. So China was the first one arguably to engage in so-called decoupling with the implementation of its firewall, preventing information from side or, or highly scrutinizing and, and preventing certain information from entering China mm-hmm. through the internet. You see it with the whole discussion around Huawei, for instance, and 5G. I'm not an expert on 5G by any stretch, but I mean, I do know that there's, there's people on both sides of the issue are both experts and highly knowledgeable about what are the degree of risks involved in using Huawei 5G equipment in the U.S. China Hawks believe that it's a threat to national security by implementing Huawei telecommunications equipment into our system, opening up back doors. Other people are more sanguine on that issue and think that it's essentially not that big of a threat and it's overstated. So, but that is, that's an early example of, of looking at how does the sourcing of products from China potentially undermine or put at risk U.S. national security. I think that same conversation will be applied, is going to be discussed at least quite heavily in the ensuing months after we resolve the COVID-19 virus. That's definitely one issue of concern in how that could play out. The other issue, I think, is just sort of the realization, you know, that 
it really goes, you know, we're in a very different space than we were. Globalization has been going on for many, many decades, but even the SARS epidemic in China in 2003 was contained for the most part in China. So now it had different qualities to it in terms of its rate of infection and so forth. But what COVID-19 really exposed, in addition to its much higher rate of infection, person-to-person transmission, is that we live in a world now where it's almost impossible to contain it through such kind of brute measure or crude measures is closing down travel, for instance. You know, we still depend, even after we put travel restrictions in in between the U.S. and China or flights between our two countries, uh, that did not apply to trade. So it did not apply to air freight per se and to, you know, seaborne maritime trade. It's just really hard to contain. And, And what it means is that you need coordination. You need the trade war as an example where you did not have coordination. You had the U.S. basically go it alone, not use, you know, to be clear, I'm not defending the WTO because I think the WTO has not worked. And I think China and China's extension to WTO really kind of was an end to the WTO in a lot of ways. It was not, WTO was not engineered and built to deal with a country like China. But that being said, the administration's approach has been entirely go it alone, not work with their allies, not forge alliances to achieve aims. It was all about this sort of bilateral, you know, sort of bilateral dealing with China. And what we learned from COVID is that the only way we're going to get out of this successfully is if, you know, or mitigate the damage is through coordination. If we don't coordinate, if we don't work in multilateral, in a multilateral fashion with our partners, including China, then it's just going to get, it's going to be much worse than it is right now. So I think that's an important lesson. I don't expect the administration to take that to heart, but um, I think that is definitely an important lesson coming out of this. And it kind of, again, under undermines this whole notion of bilateralism as the only way to deal with issues like trade. So. Yeah. Hopefully, this COVID-19 is a wake-up call to our government, the administration, and it's a proof that uh, we cannot just uh, close the door or every part is connected these days. It's hard to just uh, cut it and uh, close it so that uh, you don't uh, have all this direct relationship or you have a very straightforward uh, bilateral relationship anymore. Yeah, the world has changed. We cannot go back to many years ago. It's just impossible. Yeah. The other complication, though, too, is like just sort of just the almost counter what I just said, though, with diversification is that what during the trade war, for instance, and then this got this kind of the added effect of COVID was that if you look at a lot of producers, let's say, of like seafood, like seafood companies, right? Seafood companies are heavily invested in China, either directly or they work with partners. So, you know, roughly about say 50% of all seafood caught in Alaska, give or take, is ultimately undergoes some degree of processing in China before it's shipped back to the US. Right. And so a lot of those companies, in theory, the trade war was really created a lot of problems for them. The Chinese government did actually implement exceptions to their retaliatory tariffs on US imported goods if products were going to then be simply re-exported after processing. So that applied to seafood, but they were still subject to the US import tariffs. So, but those companies, just the the complications they had to deal with, and then you add in the fact that you had when COVID-19 was just happening, just prevalent in China and nowhere else for a time, and you had the big shutdown in factories, it was incredibly disruptive. So a lot of companies probably think at first thought, well, you know, maybe we should think about diversifying outside of China. Let's not leave China per se, but maybe we should move some of our, our future growth into other markets. The problem, though, is that it's not just competitive anymore because of low cost, because it's actually not low cost anymore, right? I mean, Chinese wages are much higher now than they, they were 10 years ago. But they've also, China also has that last mile capability, right? Where a lot of countries don't have that capability, right, to very efficiently move product, all the investment infrastructure to move products from manufacturing facilities to the port for export. China's made a lot of investments in that space. And you have the allure of the Chinese market. So being able to sell into the Chinese market a share of your production. So it's just a complicated issue. And I think that a lot of companies are really going to have to grapple with how to how to diversify, but also evaluate what the cost of diversification are going to be as well um, going mm-hmm. forward. And I just say for U.S. companies looking forward, don't focus on the trade deal. I would just think that China is moving in the right direction in certain spaces with respect to IP, IP protections. We still got a lot of warts. But I think that China is still, it's beginning to really realize the only way it can grow 
is through intellectual property protections. That's really the only way it's going to be able to sustain, to really move away from a, as wages go up from a low cost driven driver of growth and trade to an innovation oriented economy. So China's continue to grow, it's going to continue to be relevant, it's going to be increasingly relevant. And so I wouldn't be discouraged by what's happened with respect to the trade war with the COVID-19 virus. I think it's still going to be the place to be going over the next 10 years, even though it'll it'll slow down in growth over that time period. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think what you said is, uh, first, do you think China is pretty hard to for China to meet the purchase quota in the phase one trade deal. But on the other side, for businesses, let's look at the long term and think about China as a strategic market. How do you invest in that market and how do you get out from that market, continue plan your growth in that market? That's uh, Things will change, it will become better, but uh, that's a market too important to ignore. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't worry about the short term, or not. Don't worry. I think that's not the right word. So even the short term impact uh, through COVID nineteen is real, but uh, there's a take a longer term view on that market. Mm-hmm. I would say one additional thing, though, would which should be that. So I wouldn't focus for businesses. I wouldn't focus. I wouldn't bank China being able to. I wouldn't bank on the importance of the trade deal. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a big game changer. I think all it did was kind of put like a cessation for the time bearing or pause on the trade war. But one thing to be cognizant of for, this is kind of the, the a little bit contradicting what I said, just said, but I think that as much as the Trump administration has taken a very sort of aggressive, blunt force kind of approach to getting tough on China and to trying to uh, pressure China, trying to get China to, to alter its ways through these kind of crude methods, the general concerns about China and concerns about China's trade practices, about its geopolitical activities, are that has wide bipartisan support in D.C. So even though the Obama administration was not as tough, at least not tough in the same ways, and took a different approach to trying to get China to alter its practices, the Trump administration's really kind of aggressive approach is much more aggressive than what we've seen before. But you're not really hearing a lot of resistance on the part of Democrats for the most part on what Trump's been doing. You hear about, you know, you hear in certain pockets of the country that are very trade dependent, places like Washington State, for instance, are congressional delegates uh, a lot more kind of, you know, in touch with and in very much in contact with our trade community and really understand the trade issues really well and understand the cost of a trade war. But I don't, in general, nationwide, it's not a very partisan issue like other issues can be. And I think part of it's because Democrats kind of lay a little bit low on the issue in some respects, and they're not really offering now, they're kind of letting Trump lead on this issue a little bit, but they're not, they're somewhat okay with being tougher on China. And I think that's, if as a business is just to be aware that the methods employed by Trump administration were very crude and blunt, but the overall attitude or sort of approach, or I don't say approach, but overall sort of sort of impetus to be tough on China is probably not going to go away. Even if Trump is is not reelected and we have a Democrat, I expect the Dem- I, I don't expect a lot of change. I don't expect that the next administration is going to lower a lot of the import tariffs on the U.S. side. That'll affect a lot of companies and households that depend on or really heavily utilize Chinese imports. That's not, those are probably not going to go down. You know, mm. I think they're kind of there and it'll take a lot of rankling to get them down. I think it's just not a, as I said before, like trade's not in major pockets of the country. Trade's a big issue, but nationwide as a whole, trade is typically not a huge, it's not among the top issues that voters care about. So there's not really that impetus to do anything different at this point. Okay. Oh, wow. That's very helpful because I am really working on this U.S.-China cross-border business consulting. That's very important for me to keep in mind that uh, these two countries, uh, there's a lot of uh, power struggling or power battling (laughs) between the two countries and overall politics uh, kind of a sentiment uh, towards the relationship towards each other. All right. I think uh, that's uh, very informational our discussion here today. I believe this will also help our audience uh, think about uh, understand uh, what this means and uh, you know get prepared or plan out their business in terms of with China 
I want to thank our audience for being here with us and uh, especially thank our guest Spencer today sharing with us about all this knowledge and uh, his thoughts of the future. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you for tuning into In China with Michelle Zhao. Please join us for another edition next Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk again next week. 